0: the oh, that's enough of you. Good morning, guys. Welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. Uh, that's what we do, and that's how we do it. So if you're new here this morning, welcome. If you're not new here this morning, welcome back. Awesome. I, uh, I did send that, uh, that passage to Sharla with an evil cackle. Let's see what she's going to do with this one. Uh, but the way she unpacked it was exactly the way she should have. It's, it's, it's the meaning of that passage. And in fact, if you hold on to what she taught you this morning uh, through that psalm, you will be well-primed for where we're going today. So hold on to that, that, uh, that, that, Well, what Charlotte explained. Hold on to that feeling of, well, we actually hold on to that feeling of wrath. That's what you feel when you hate the sin in the world, the brokenness of the world. You're feeling wrath appropriately. You are hating what is wrong. That means that you are loving justice. Thank you, Charlotte, for, for laying that out for us. That's where we're going uh, this morning. Before we go there, um, I want to explain uh, the, the, the change of date uh, to the movie night that, we, uh, that uh, she shared a moment ago. So the movie night was, uh, was scheduled not for this Friday, but for next Friday. Um, but my mistake, um, I got the dates mixed up with something else that's happening uh, that Friday night, so, so we pushed it back. But let me share with you what's happening that Friday night. Two weeks from today, Friday the 6th, uh, it's going to be happening in downtown Wolfboro. Um, over the last three years, the pastors of our region um, have been coming together on the first Thursday of every month to share breakfast together. And uh, for me, it's been one of the highlights of my month. Every month, I get together with four other pastors from this region uh, Mark Swenson, First Congregational Church of Ossipee, uh, Justin Marbury, in Calvary Wolfboro, uh, uh, Darren Forehand from Wolfboro uh, Bible, and uh, Kevin Van Brunt from uh, Melvin Village Community Church. The five of us get together to share breakfast, and the reason why we gather together is because even though we're parts of different local churches, we are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Th- these guys are my brothers. And incidentally, the people who are in their churches are seeking to follow the same Jesus that we are trying to follow, right? That means they are our brothers and sisters. And even though necessity does drive us apart from one another, we can't all in the entire world practice our universal union that we share in Christ. It's impossible due to space and time. We can gather with the other brothers and sisters in our region. And so two weeks from Friday on the 6th, All of our church, we're inviting the people of all of our churches to gather together in Wolfboro at Kate Park, right downtown, for a time of fellowship, food, and a time of testimony, prayer, and worship. So 5.30, we're going to be there uh, to start building those relationships, start getting our church families together. Then at 6.30, we're going to start officially a time of of prayer uh, and practicing our union in that way. So I'm really excited for this, and I hope this is something that we can do more and more as, as time goes by. Getting to know the broader body of Christ uh, in this region. So please put that on your calendar. Really hope you can make it, and then come to the movie night two weeks after that. Awesome. Esther six, verse fourteen through seven, verse ten. We're going from the last verse of verse six, all the way, chapter six, all the way through to the last verse of chapter seven. That's where we are today. Up to this point in the book of Esther, we've seen parallel stories, right? Two different stories that are going the same direction, are overlapping from time to time. But here today, these two parallel stories are going to collide. It's going to be explosive. (laughs) The two stories, the first story is Esther's story. Esther was made the queen, right, after Vashti was removed. And there in the palace, Esther had a unique opportunity to be able to step into the king's throne room and say, stop this genocide. Do not let this happen. But we see what she does over the course of this story. We see that she acts wisely, and she acts courageously. Rather than just going right in and asking the king to protect the Jewish people, what she does is she requests that he come to a feast. All right, she delays. Then at the feast, the next day, she goes to the king again, and she delays again, saying, why don't you come back to another feast, and I'll make my request for my people at that time. And with all of this, what she's doing is she's building the king's anticipation, making him long for the request that she's about to make. In other words, she's going to make him beg so it doesn't feel like she's begging. Also, she's winning more favor in his eyes by just feeding his appetites for food, for, for drink, for beauty, and for honor, putting herself in an even stronger position to make her request. And then finally, she's racking up a backlog of promises because by the time that she makes her request today... He will have asked three times if he could give her up to half the kingdom. She's in a good spot. And so today, she's going to make her request. That's the first storyline we've been following. The second storyline, which is definitely connected, is the storyline of Haman. And if you think about it, Haman's storyline up to this point has been an emotional roller coaster, right? It starts by seeing that he was promoted to number two in the entire kingdom. From what we know about Haman, who's probably pretty excited about that, but then, when he leaves the palace, he sees that Mordecai doesn't bow down to him, and we read that he is filled with fury. Then, he's invited to Esther's feast, and he went out joyful and glad of heart. But then, Mordecai neither rose nor trembled, so he was filled with wrath. <laughs> then his wife says, why don't you kill the guy? And he's very pleased by that idea. But then he parades Mordecai through the city, and we read that Haman hurried to his house mourning. This guy is It's not sustainable. And what we're gonna to see today is it, that's exactly right. In fact, this emotional roller coaster ride is not gonna turn back up. He's gonna keep going down. And that's what we're gonna to see today. Two stories, Esther jockeying for the good of her people, Haman jockeying for the good of himself. And if last week was the great turning point of the book, the pivot of the book, today is the climax where these two plots collide. It's the moment of truth Lives hang in the balance, both Haman's, uh, uh, Esther's, and all the Jewish people, and it's all going to come down to the whim of the king. It's not a good place to put our hopes, but that's where we are because ultimately our hope is not in the king. Their hope is not in the king, but in the king of the universe, and we're going to see that. It's true for us as well today. So let's go ahead and pray, and we will dive into this passage together. Heavenly Father, we um, we come before you opening your word, thankful that we know without a shadow of a doubt that this word is eternal, it is true. Whatever it says, we need to hear and believe, Lord, whatever it says, whatever it points us towards, whatever truths it points us towards, should lead us to worship and obedience. And I pray that would be the result today. God, that we would come to have a fuller understanding of who you are, what you've done, what it means to follow you. And Father, that by the end of the day, we would uh, be more in awe of your goodness and of your glory, more desiring to worship you, because ultimately that's what we want. We want you given all glory. Lord, we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God. That's what we seek to do. Uh, May this time of, in your word, help accomplish that goal, that mission. How we love you. Do what you will today, whatever you want, whether we like it or not. Change us and shape us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. All right, at the end of the passage last week, this is how we ended. It's not up there. Here it is. Then his, wi- then his wife and his, sorry, then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, this is talking about Haman, said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. That's how it ended last week. He's telling, she's telling them, telling him, this is the beginning of the end for you, Haman. And with those not very encouraging yet prophetic words, he hears a knock at the door. This is where we're starting in verse 19. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast with Esther uh, that Esther had prepared. So even as he's hearing this warning of doom. Right, this prophecy that you are going to go on just to fall completely before your enemies, Haman. He's whisked off to this feast. This is where Haman's heart's at. And remember, Haman thinks he's being honored. He thinks he's going to this feast because he's just so loved by the queen and the king. Maybe he's going to this feast, we don't know, but maybe he's going to this feast thinking, well, at least this is going well for me. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Join me in verse 1. So the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. So he's asked three times now. His curiosity is at a fever pitch. And Esther did tell him last week that she was going to make his request. So here, here it is. This is what she says. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And we have been sold, if, sorry, if we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. This is the moment we've been waiting for. It's been, we've been building up to this moment for a long time. And I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in this moment. And I wish I could be in the heads of all three people in that room. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pause time for just a minute here. And we're going to take our camera and we're going to pan around the room. We're going to look at one character at at a time and try to figure out what is going on in their heads. Because I think we can actually have a pretty good guess. Let's first look at Esther. Let's fix the camera on her. Because here, Esther's courage and wisdom is fully on display. Guys, we have been talking about her wisdom and her courage throughout this entire time, but we see it here as well. And just a guess, she's probably scared out of her mind. She has no reason to be confident that this is going to work out the way she wants it to work. She is still relying on God bringing about the end that he desires. So courageous, that's the first thing we see. Because up until now, her Jewishness is hidden. Before this moment, nobody knew she was a Jew, at least not in that room. They still didn't know uh, her heritage. And (laughs) the king didn't even know he was killing the Jewish people. So up to this point, she was safe in the palace. Up to this point, she would have been able to hide anonymously in the harem and just hope that this genocide of the Jewish people would just pass by without her and she would be safe, but not anymore. (laughs) Because at this point, she's tied herself to the Jewish people. She has confessed her identity alongside of her request and that is courageous she's saying to them guys if you want to kill these people you're going to have to kill me actually she says it a little more wisely than that if you want to kill these people you're going to have to kill the king's wife she ties the fate of the jewish people to herself and then lays herself before the steamroller hoping that they'll stop that's what she's doing here because if she fails she dies that's courage so courage for a second, wisdom. She knows the king cares most about what? The king. <laughs> she knows that the king is an incredibly self-centered man, that, that he cares mostly for his own good. So the way that she makes her request is she's betting off of and building upon the fact that she has accrued favor in his sight. She's betting upon the fact that she has fed his appetites his food, for food, for drink, for honor and beauty so that she can go to him and now say, I, your beloved queen, who, uh, who has now earned so much favor in your sight, has been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She, he's, he, she's playing upon his pride. This is not just some people that you are putting to death. This is your queen that you are putting to, get to death. And the other thing is she knows that he will care for the Jewish people if their protection is for his good. Do you see that? Let me just read the last couple of verses here. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. <laughs> For our affliction is not worth to be compared with the loss to the king. So in other words, hey, if you were selling us so that you could get a big financial profit, I wouldn't have said anything because, I mean, my highest good, my highest goal is your good. I want your benefit, O king, way more than my own, way more than the good of my people. That's what she says. But she's speaking courageously and she's speaking wisely because she knows the heart of the king. That's what we see when we look at Esther. But let's pan the camera on now to Haman. What's, what's he thinking? Uh-oh, yeah. I think his blood is running cold in this moment. You know, I, I think that he sees what's happening and there's no way to stop it. I mean, there's nothing he can do at this point to stop what is inevitably coming to him. Have you ever been in that situation where you see something coming and there's no way to stop it? That feeling that your blood runs cold, it's happened to me a couple times, many times, but there's two that stand out to me the most. Uh, one time I was playing disc golf um, and the fairway of this disc golf course was alongside a road and you see where this is going, right? It's a hard plastic disc. I, I throw it as hard as I can and it veers right into the road where this... Suburban is heading full speed, 50 miles per hour towards me. Hard plastic disc, Suburban with a glass windshield, heading straight for it. I saw what was happening. There's nothing I could do about it. I got that chill, that feeling of, oh man, I see where this is going. And then three, two, one, it smacked right in the middle of the windshield of this car. Uh, she was very gracious. Uh, I, I felt terrible about it. But that, I know that feeling, that, that your blood runs cold, you see it coming, there's no way to stop it. Same thing happened to me once in Chicago. I was um, with, with some higher stakes on this one. Um, I was riding my bike uh, down the road, southwest Chicago, and the road was empty. Um, and so as I was riding, I was, on, I was on the shoulder, and this car comes out of a gas station. And because there's no cars on the road, he didn't really look very carefully. He saw no cars, so he just went. But the problem is, he went, into what would have been oncoming traffic, okay? So he turns left immediately just to shoot into a quick, um, an alley that's just a little bit before the gas station. So there I am, riding my bike, and he shoots around this corner, and we're about to have a head-on collision. Me on my bike, him in the car. He hits his brakes, I hit my brakes. I see it coming, there's no way to stop it. My blood runs cold, I hit the windshield. Thankfully, that one worked out as well. But we know this feeling. We can put ourselves in Haman's shoes. He, he feels, I'm sure, like a gazelle feels when he's at an African watering hole and realizes a minute too late that logs don't have eyes. <laughs> Death is at his door. He knows it's coming. And his blood runs cold. Because like I said before, up to that moment, he thought he was at that party being honored, but he was actually at that party being, being trapped. Caught completely off guard, saw it coming, no way to stop it. That's the second person in the room, Haman. Third, the king. And luckily, we don't have to wonder what the king thinks. This passage tells us what the king thinks. It all comes down to him. Lives hang in the balance of what he's going to do. So here's his answer. Verse 5. Join me there. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? It's a good sign. And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king rose in his wrath from the dining, from uh, sorry, from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, "Will he even assault the queen in my presence?" In my own house. As the word left his mouth, the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. <laughs> then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, wh- whose words saved the king, <laughs> is standing in Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Guys, that is the climax of the book. Think about this. The king says, who is he, where is he, who has dared to do this? In other words, let me at him. And what does Esther says? She says, this guy right here, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman says, nothing, mute terror, right? His forked tongue is tied. He knows what's happened. He knows harm is determined against him. And so... He is terrified. That's what it tells us. He is terrified before the king and the queen. And guys, from this point on, his fall comes fast and it comes hard. This whole passage is only 10 verses long. He knows he's hosed, so he saw harm, was determined against him. Desperate times call for desperate measures and he begs for his life. That's what it says. He's beginning to beg. He was begging for his life. So it says in verse 7, And so the king leaves to clear his head, and he falls before Esther to beg for mercy. That's what he was doing. You know, we can speculate about what he was actually doing. Was he actually assaulting the queen? Was he actually attacking her? Well, the passage says clearly he was begging for his life. That's what he was trying to do. But then the king comes back and thinks that he is assaulting his wife. Notice, nobody corrects him. (laughs) Nobody, like, Harbona was in the corner. He saw the whole thing happen. He could have been like, oh, actually, he was just begging for his life. Uh, Harbonus also knows the way this is going. He keeps his mouth shut. There's some more wisdom in this passage. But that's, the way, that's what happens. The king comes back, sees him falling on the couch where Esther is, assumes that he is attacking the, bride, attacking the queen, and sentences him to death without saying the words exactly. And then Harbona, this eunuch, Uh, pipes up, right, and he he goes, well, you could always hang him on the gallows that he was going to use to kill your friend. (laughs) Shut up, man, (laughs) and they cover his face and send him away, and this is true to form. We have to notice that. This is true to form with the king. This entire time, the king has never thought for himself, and he's not thinking for himself here either. Uh, He's angry, But it's even Harbona who has to suggest to him, hey, maybe you should kill him on these gallows. And all the king says is, yeah, kill him on that. Do that. Hang him on that. So let me just recap the last 13 verses. Um, I'm thinking from the moment that Haman returns home after parading Mordecai to the city up to this point. That's only 13 verses. Haman's fall is so hard. And it's so fast. Haman goes from feasting next to the king to being executed by the king. He goes from begging, we go from seeing Esther beg for her life to Haman begging for his life. Haman's wife and friends say that you will fall before Mordecai, and then Haman falls at the feet of Esther. And then we see Haman covering his face in mourning as he rushes home, and here we see Haman's face being covered as he's carried off to be executed. His fall comes hard and it comes fast. Now at the beginning of this book, I encourage you guys to read through the entire book of Esther and to keep your eyes open for three main themes as you read through the book. The first was the silent sovereignty of God, right? The second thing to look for was man's responsibility. We've talked about those two things a lot through the book. Here is the clearest example of the third theme that we see as we walk through the book of Esther, the stupidity of sin, the foolishness of wickedness. That when we sin, when we live evil, wicked life, it's not only wrong, it's stupid. And that's what we see in this passage so clearly. We're going to pick that apart the rest of our time together. Because what is it that brings about Haman's fall? His own wickedness. It's his own plotting that leads to his destruction, his own arrogance, vengefulness, greed, his own lust for power. He is reaping what he's sown here. He is getting back what he gave. He is actually even dying by the same means that he intended to carry out his murder. In this passage for us, it's a perfect illustration of what Charlotte helped us see from Psalm chapter 7 just a minute ago. Let me read this passage again, just verses 15 and 16. The psalmist writes, He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. Isn't that Haman? His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull has violence descended. This is a perfect picture of what just happened to Haman. It's his own plotting that leads to his own destruction. And this idea is echoed throughout all of Scripture. Let's look now at Proverbs 28.10. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit. It's the same idea. Proverbs 26, 27. A stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Same idea. Psalm 141, verse 10. This is David's prayer. He says, let the wicked fall into their own nets. It's the same idea. The whole idea that's coming through uh, all of these passages we're seeing illustrated in Haman's life, is that we will not af- escape the effects of our own wickedness. We will not escape the effects of our own wickedness. So is this karma? Is that what we're seeing? Is this, is this karma on display? Uh, this uh, it, it seems like it. After all, when we talk about karma, what we're talking about is the universe bringing balance, only the issue is that karma is a lie and the universe has no power. The difference here is that God is truth and he has power over the universe. So this isn't karma. This isn't the universe bringing balance. What this is, is God bringing justice. This isn't karma on display. This is the justice of God on display. This is an acting out of the justice of God. Now, justice, I don't know if, um, if, you, if you've been listening to some of the rumblings through the Christian world uh, recently, but the word justice is kind of a hot topic uh, right now. Because um, you know, half, peop- half the people, when we, when we hear the word justice, we pump our fists in the air. Right? We say, yes, Lord, bring justice, make wrong things right, make this world the way it's supposed to be. And granted, I want to say, absolutely. We should pump our fists in the air when we talk about justice. But the other half of the Christian world, when they hear the word justice, they get a little nervous. In fact, I was talking at a a, a camp about a year ago and I had the responsibility to preach on Deuteronomy chapter 10, a passage that points directly to the justice of God. Um, And a guy, as I was playing with Davy at the the lake, comes over to me to express concern that I was going to be talking about justice. uh, To make sure that I wasn't going to use the word justice to muddy or to water down the gospel. And I want to say, granted there as well. You know, we have to be careful that we don't let good things replace the best thing. We have to be careful that we don't let God's promises replace the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, that's fair. That's right. But how sad is it that a word that describes the heart of God could lead to division? How how sad is it that the word justice, which is an attribute of our king, could lead to separation in the church, differences of opinions that pull us apart. Let me tell you what justice is. Justice is an attribute of God that tells us who he is. Justice is God's righteousness, his perfection on display. And when we talk about the justice of God, we see it most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me put this, this passage up here, Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. I'm sorry, not most clearly, but very clearly. This is what it says. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God. Here it is. Who is not partial and takes no bribe. It goes on. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then closes. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay. Justice, God's justice is on display here. In this passage, it shows us both sides of the justice coin. There's two sides to the justice coin. The first side is what we see in verse 17. It says, He is not partial and it takes no bribe. What that is getting at is this. He will not be wooed by your smooth words. He will not be persuaded by high-priced lawyers. He's not going to be mistaken in his judgment and he will not fail fail to dole out the wrong penalty. He will dole out the penalty that fits the crime. In other words, The guilty will be punished no matter who they are, no matter what they do. Perfect justice. The guilty will be punished. That's one side of the justice coin. The other side of the justice coin is in verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves a sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In other words, not only does God fight against sin, he fights for those sinned against. Not only does he oppose wrongdoers, he vindicates the wronged. Not only does God punish the guilty, He liberates the guiltless. He cares for the vulnerable, providing for the fatherless, protecting the widow, watching over the sojourners. The innocent are defended. Those two expressions fully define what the justice of God looks like. The guilty will be punished, the innocent will be defended. And I can't help but point out what we see in verse 19 really quickly little tangent, we'll get back to it. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, you who are beneficiaries of the justice of God imitate his justice. As he justly defended you, you justly defend others. It's an invitation for us to imitate his nature. (laughs) Live like him in this way care for the orphan, care for the widow, care for the sojourner. And to the extent that you're able, fight for punishment for the guilty. That doesn't mean justice is, or, uh, vengeance is in our hands. That's clear, Romans. But we do fight for justice in this world, understanding that we are not the ultimate judge. Our God is. So when we speak about the justice of God, we are speaking of how he will run a comb through the tangled mess of this world, correcting disorder, fixing all brokenness. And though all is broken right now in this world, though much is broken in this world right now, one day the kingdom of God, his full justice, will be on perfect display. And until that day, we work in this world to imitate that justice. And so that's what we see happening here. Justice being put on display. The Jews being protected more on that next week. And the Haman being punished. So guys, justice is good news. It is good news for us. We want to see the victims defended, wicked punished, evil purged, broken, fixed. (laughs) In fact, it's the justice of God that's going to bring about the end of history that we all so long for. When death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's the justice of God that's going to bring all that about. Who wouldn't want justice? The answer? The guilty. (laughs) The people who don't want justice are those who are guilty. The bad guys don't like justice. Because if he defends the innocent and he punishes the guilty, what that means is that our perfectly just God will judge perfectly. Uh, He's he's not going to look away from their sin. He's not going to... Treat it like it's no big deal. Brush it under the rug. He is not partial. Takes no bribes. He executes perfect justice. And while justice is good news, and we should want it, the sobering fact is that no one is righteous. No, not one. We long for the justice of God until we realize that we're not in the jury. We're on the bench. We long for the justice of God until we realize that Him pouring out His righteous and beautiful wrath on sin means he pours out his righteous wrath on us. All of a sudden, it's not so beautiful anymore. In that room, we are less like Esther and more like Haman because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve, or maybe I'll flip it around, all of us deserve God's just wrath to fall upon us. We are all the Scooby-Doo guys who have our mask pulled off. And we would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for that just God No one is righteous, no, not one, not you, not me. And so the justice of God is good news, but it's bad news for the bad guys. In other words, it's bad news for us. The only person the justice of God is naturally good news for is the perfect person. And we are not the perfect person. (laughs) But here's the good news. (laughs) The perfect judge is also God who's perfectly loving. The perfect judge does not delight in pouring out wrath on those he loves. So what did he do? He sent a perfect person. He sent Jesus Christ to come and be the perfect person that we could never be. To come and live the perfect life. He alone in this world never sinned. He alone stands guiltless in the presence of God. He alone can walk into God's courtroom and walk out vindicated. While Esther risked her life to deliver her people... From imminent death, Jesus gave his life to deliver us from eternal death. While Esther covered the head of her enemy and had him hung on the gallows, Jesus crushed the head of his enemy when he hung on the tree. And we can stand guiltless before the throne of the perfect judge, not because we are perfect, but because he is perfect. Because by faith in him and his death and resurrection, his perfection is credited to us. It is given to us. Because if we fall upon him in faith, Trusting in his perfection, not our own, we can stand guiltless before the king of the universe on the day that he comes to call. This is what we call the gospel. The hope that is found not in our perfection, not in the good things we can do in this world, not in how we can shape the world we live in, though he calls us to work to shape it. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and it is the reason we sing on Sundays. Is the reason we lay down our lives for this king. is because he is worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory. So coming to the end here, I've got four encouragements for you, and I'm going to keep them pretty pretty quick. The first encouragement is for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you've never submitted to him as your king, this is it. You're not perfect, so fall on the perfection of another. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect, so... Find your hope in the one who is. We all feel sin, we, uh, the shame of our sin. We all know that we're not perfect and we know uh, that we're guilty because of that. But we know that if we trust in the one who was perfect, if we trust in Jesus Christ alone, what he has done, that he has done what you have not. Look to him. Find forgiveness in him. Find the release from the burden of perfection in him. <laughs> Because if you do, you are not just forgiven, you are adopted into the family of the Father who loves you deeply. Eternal forgiveness, eternal love, eternal life. Look to Jesus Christ. That's my encouragement for you. Encouragement number two, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, rest in the justice of God. Rest in the justice of God. Before trusting in Jesus, the justice of God was bad news for you. But now that you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the justice of God is good news for you. We remember the gospel that I just explained, and we remember that our hope is not what you have done, your good works, the ways that you have worked in this world, the good things you've done. Your hope is when what somebody else has done, that God has poured out his just penalty upon sin on Jesus instead of you. I mean, you've, you've heard this before. We talk about it every week, and we're just going to keep doing that until the day Jesus takes us home. But we still struggle to believe this. I do. I struggle to believe this every time I sin, every time I think that I've done something to lose God's favor. I start to believe in my heart that He, he feels differently about me. It's almost as if I was saved by His grace purely by faith, but I have to maintain what I've got now. That's a lie. Don't believe that. He cares how we live. We shouldn't dismiss sin. We have to fight for holiness, but at the same time, we are loved purely by grace, not by what we've done. You will never be less loved in the eyes of God because of the sins that you commit in this world. He has adopted you. You are His. You are no, able, no more able to get out of His family than a child is able to get out of your family. And He's a perfect Father. <laughs> he will forgive perfectly find rest in that. By faith your penalty has been fit, paid. By faith you have been justified. So rest in the justice of God and rejoice in the justice of God because for you it is good news. Encouragement number 3, if you're a follower of Christ, imitate the justice of God. Imitate the justice of God. And this is what I said just a moment ago. Uh, we all uh, all ha- uh, sorry, all will be made right. Uh, when our just God comes, he will bring the fullness of his kingdom. And on that day, death shall be no more. Either shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But until that day, God calls us as citizens of his kingdom to imitate his justice, to live in this world as those who have our home in heaven. Like we read in Deuteronomy ten nineteen, love the sojourner, therefore. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Imitate his justice Because we have been delivered by His, we see the brokenness in this world. We intervene. We we see when things are wrong. We, to the extent that we're able, run a comb through it, help make things right. But ultimately, trusting all things to the justice of our God, who will ultimately make all things right. That's encouragement number three. And encouragement number four. This is for all of us. Remember that sin is stupid. Remember the foolishness of wickedness. It's hard to believe sometimes, right? Sometimes we think that doing things the wrong way might actually help us out a little bit. In fact, I think we feel that quite a bit. When God calls us to do hard things, all of a sudden we start doubting that His way is the best way, but we forget that He is perfect, and if it's His way, then maybe it is the best way. It's pretty hard to believe that his way is the right way until we see an example of somebody like Haman and and realize that, yeah, breaking God's way, not doing things his way, doesn't turn out the way that we hope it would, and we so often find that to be the case. God's commands, the way that he calls us to live, can be hard, but they are not arbitrary and they are not random. They come from the heart of a loving father, a father who wants what's best for us. It's his love for us that causes us to give us these laws. They are for our good. They're for our joy. They're for our best. So my encouragement for you is this. Do not base your obedience to the Lord upon what you think of his commandments. Base your obedience to the Lord upon what you know of his character. Let me say that again. Do not base your obedience to the Lord upon what you think of his commandments, the way you feel about them, whether you think they make sense, if you like them. Base your obedience to the Lord upon what you know about his character. He is good. And he loves you. And because he is good, his ways are good. Because his ways are best, because of that, his ways are his. Sorry, no, his ways are best because his ways are his. He is Wonderful in counsel because he is the wonderful counselor. And though his ways are not the easiest, nor will they lead to the most comfortable life necessarily, they are what's best. And we can trust that with the same faith that we have when we came to him in the first place. Surrendering to the one who we believe is not only the God who created the universe, but who loved us enough to send his son to do the hardest thing, though it is the most beautiful thing in the history of the world. We know his ways are good. And that sin is stupid because they come from him, his heart, and his mind. And so that's my encouragement for you. Number one, if you are not perfect, so fall upon the perfection of another. Encouragement number two, rest in the justice of God. Number three, imitate the justice of God. And number four, remember, sin is stupid. His path is the best path to life. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray back those um, takeaways at the end because we read uh, stories in the Bible and sometimes it's really hard to know how they connect to our lives. This one, I confess, was hard to figure out how we connect to our lives uh, until we realize, wow, God, in this passage we see your silently sovereign hand working things out the way you promised you would. What we see here is a foretaste of eternity. In eternity, all things will be made right. But in this passage here, we see your silently sovereign hand working in to make this situation right. Lord, you can do that now and Lord, you do do that now. You work things out justly and we long and long and long for the day when all things will be worked out justly, Lord. When all things will be done according to your perfect plan. And so, Father, we, we pray that now we would live in the freedom of the cross, knowing, Lord, that we can praise you for your justice because in, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are considered just. We are justified. We are holy. We are beloved. We are adopted. We are yours. Help us rest in that. And Father, for those of us who, who have not yet found our hope there, we pray that today would be a day that's a turning point, maybe the day where they talk to somebody uh, they know who, who believes in you and just ask the question, can you tell me more about Jesus? How can I have the, the rest and the, and the joy that can be found in him? Give us the boldness to do that. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that today would be a day where uh, you would convict us of of sin, uh, recognizing, Lord, that though you will love us no matter what comes in this world, uh, you want us to live in your way, not just in obedience to you for your glory, though that's a part of it, that's the main part of it, but for our own good as well. We see the justice of God and, it seems, we see the wisdom of God as well. So God, thank you for this passage. Work it in us now, we pray.